HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for... every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome natural wine proponent and award-winning author, Alice Firing. In this episode, we're going to talk to Alice about her new book, Natural Wine for the People. Understanding Natural Wine's Place in the World, and we'll hear Alice's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Going back many decades, Julia was both an early advocate for drinking wine, good wine, and for American winemaking. This was a direct result of her time living in France. There she gained an appreciation both for winemaking and wine drinking. Winemaking as it related to history, tradition, craftsmanship, and wine drinking as it related to how it contributed to the enjoyment of eating. Wine meant a lot to Julia for all of these reasons, and she was thrilled when California producers began embracing a more artisanal spirit. Her advocacy for wine was definitely not about getting drunk, but there's something to be said for wine drinking's ability to facilitate human connection. For sure, Julia believed in having a good time. I think Julia would have applauded the continued growth among winemakers dedicated to less adulterated and commercialized winemaking. After all, she led that clarion call for food. Someone with a passion for wine, wine culture, and specifically natural wine, is award-winning author of more than seven books, Alice Firing. She was named Imbibes Magazine's Wine Person of the Year in 2013, and her website, aptly named The Firing Line, 
is a go-to resource for natural wine aficionados. She joined us today to talk about her new book, Natural Wine for the People, what it is, where to find it, and how to love it, published by 10 Speed Press, and to help us better understand what natural wine is all about. Welcome to the podcast, Alice. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're delighted to have you. So tell us what is going on in the wine world that you thought there was a need for a book that's more or less a roadmap to drinking natural wine. Well, when I started writing about natural wine, before we called it natural wine, it was a, a small subset of the wine drinking community. And then it started to catch on a little bit. So I wrote my second book, Naked Wine. I thought that would be the last book I'd write on natural wine. And I wanted to give the world a solid history of where this stuff came from, what it is, who the people are, and where it's going. Because I could see as... You know, things catch on, you lose history. It happens over and over again. I thought that was it. I put down the history. I don't have to go back. But now that natural wine really has arrived, it's no longer an edge. It's everywhere. And there are so many misconceptions. I figured I'd take one more shot at just making a fun, concise book uh, that could maybe just bring you know, truth to the category. And I, it was really needed because there's so much confusion around it. Well, we're going to endeavor to dispel a lot of confusion today. And I thought one place to start, which is almost a rhetorical question, but I, th- I think it's really important um, to what you just said, and I'm the child of two historians, is natural wine a new thing? Natural wine is not a new thing. It's a very ancient way of making wine. Um, Actually, technical wine is the new thing. It was a new thing um, that really came on strong in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and beyond. So in a way, we could say that the commercially driven wine product is something that was the aberration. However, I must add that Um, adulterating wine is nothing new. The Greeks did it, the Romans did it, and uh, throughout the year, through the Middle Middle Ages, people were pilloried for adding things like gypsum or arsenic to sweeten wine. So as long as wine has been a commodity, a product, people have been trying to make more money out of it by cheapening it. So it's a conflict that's been going on as long as wine has been made. But natural wine is not new at all. But it is something like we forgot how to forage, we forgot you know, home remedies, and we forgot about natural wine until very recently. <laughs> or, or we became convinced that all good-tasting wine just tasted like oak barrels. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So I, I think you, your book has a certain, you know, lovely voice that's your own that's quite um, entertaining to read and often very frank. But then it's also like very informative in many ways, like an encyclopedia. But I think you use the technical term crap to describe what's in a lot of adulterated or com- not adulterated, but commercialized wine. Yeah, commercialized. So could you kind of talk about the crap difference between what's maybe at the average grocery store and what's in typically in natural wine? Right. You know, like I, I tried to write this book as close to my natural voice when I give talks, whatever. And that is why people, you know, I get up in front of people, people ask what natural wine is. And I say very simply, it's wine without crap in it. And then we start to um, unpack that. So there are 72 plus additives that are perfectly legal in winemaking, and that is quite a lot. Some of those are in the category like enzymes. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of kinds of enzymes that can affect the processes. But the very basic additives that you will get in almost any wine, and often very high quality or or high quality or perceived as high quality wine, will be yeast to start fermentation, bacteria to start the secondary fermentation called malolactic. There will be added tannin to boost color. There might be added chips, oak chips, that also bolster color. There is acidification. There is, um, going back to fermentation, there is urea, 
nutrients, all kinds of nutrients. There are things to stop uh, Brettanomyces, kind of some very nasty chemicals that are added to stop that called Velcrin. That's the famous one that is used. So it goes on and on. A lot of these things are used to not only bring a completely clean and bacteria-free, shall we say, wine to the public, but also to help us control it. There are also machines that help you form what the wine should taste like. So there you go. I, I kind of consider that crap. And so contrast that with, because um, I know natural wine is not, and we'll get into that, it's not exactly one thing, but can you just con- contrast that yes. with what is natural wine? Very happy to. Natural wine in its pure state, state will only have one ingredient, and that would be a grape. And then I often think to make a natural wine is kind of like a paper bag dramatics. In the paper bag, you put a human, you put a grape bunch, means you have the stems and the seeds and all that stuff on it. And you have whatever the winemaker's choice of vessel to put that wine into. And there you go. Go ahead and try to make wine out of it. So that is the basis thing. You can't take the human element out of it. But then there's another way to view natural wine. And the more that natural wine evolves, the more that I come back to this way of thinking. Now, I... I'm mostly a vegetarian with a little bit of fish thrown in. I used to be a strict lacto-ovo vegetarian. But let's take vegetarians. There are lacto-ovos, there are vegans, there are macrobiotics, there are raw foodists. And, you know, the vegans and the raw foodists are always going to feel a little bit more superior than the lacto-ovo. And in that way, I view natural wine and the thing that may be a little bit questionable is how much added sulfite is allowed. Does, was that clear? Yeah, and usually, right, the sulfites are added as a preservative. Yes, yeah, sulfites are added as a preservative, antibacterial, just the way we would take it for, you know, our health. And where it gets extremely controversial, and this is where people need to know, there are the legal limit for a red wine, and it's higher for a white wine, is 250 parts per million for adding. Now, even if you don't know what that's like, consider a natural wine that might have 20 parts per million added or zero. It's a huge difference, and it changes the way the wine tastes dramatically. And just just because I know that it sometimes gets discussed, and it may actually be a, a, a fallacy or questionable, like the whole MSG allergy, mm-hmm. but some people think they're allergic to sulfites. Are the sulfites that are typically used something that's actually a naturally occurring component? No, they're not. And that's another part that I would love to see some research done on. First of all, most people who say they have a sulfite allergy do not, because if you can eat dried fruit that has sulfur in it. So if you could eat those bright orange apricots and have no reaction or normal raisins, you don't have a sulfite allergy because those have way more than any white wine has. But most sulfite that gets added into wine are petrochemical derivatives. And there's a movement among natural wine people to start using elemental sulfur direct from the volcano. That has another ethical thing that I don't really want to go into now, but they are very, <laughs> because I, it's really, I'm just beginning to do like kind of major research on it, but it is very different. And the winemakers themselves marvel at the way it is different. It is easier to handle. It's pretty toxic to handle petrochemical sulfite. Mm. So yeah, it's quite different. And is the benefit of the sulfite that it preserves the wine in a way that you end up with less corked barrels? Or how does it actually preserve? Because you still end up with corked wine. Yeah, you still end up with corked wine because sulfites have absolutely nothing to do with that. The, The corked stuff either comes from people using peroxide to clean the winery and then it gets into the winery or it gets into the cork itself by not being cleaned properly. Sulfites have only to do with the wine in the tank and then the bottle and it both cleans up any bacteria that could be getting in there um, such as um, 
you know, it cleans up lactic bacteria, makes it easier for wine not to get lactobacillus, which will turn your wine immediately into vinegar. Um, mm. Actually, lactobacillus will do something else, but... Um, and the other one is just it. It how does, it just renders it antiseptic, so it's easy to ship under maybe not such great conditions like hot conditions. So it'll keep it shelf stable. What it also does, you know, um, sensorily, is that it's a little bit like hair gel or hair fixative. It keeps it in place. And it also hyper-focuses the flavors and the aromas to the point where you start losing the real flavors and aromas. So in a way, the wine becomes a bit of a cartoon of itself. I see. So it's sort of like both a stabilizer and kind of a more production safety failsafe. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, we're going to get out of this science. Yes, let's go out of it. <laughs> and and t- do, talk about more of the, the fun stuff. And so let's talk about where where in the world most natural wine is produced. And I know that's a really broad question, but I think it's helpful for people to understand, you know, where where they can find it and that they it, it kind of pops up in many, many places. Exactly. And so talk a little bit about that landscape, please. If you had asked me that 20 years ago, I would say, oh, Go to go to France. It's really the lion chairs all coming out of France. Well, that has changed. So now it is France, Italy, Spain probably have the the largest volume and the largest collection of natural winemakers. Australia is coming on strong, and of course, a very soft spot for myself, the country of Georgia, is um, is a real hot spot for natural wine right now. In fact. The country is pretty much forming an identity as a go-to for natural wine. Of course, most of the people who make natural wine make really small quantities, so that complicates matter. Oh, I'd also add that another one coming on strong is Slovakia and the Czech Republic. So is the, are you, I assume you're deliberately leaving out American Ah, wine. and when here we go to America. It's like, yes, we are, have some wonderful American wines, and that I think right now is in development and some absolutely exquisite ones. But I find America, this again is going to make me very unpopular, and it's not that I don't love some of the wines, but in many of the wines. But because how expensive land is here, it is very difficult for the person making the wine to also farm. And for me, that is truly the greatest expression of natural wine. But yet I will go to Point to Vermont and Deirdre Heacon and La Garagista for probably not only one of my favorite American winemakers, but my favorite American fair, favorite winemakers anywhere in the universe. So for natural wine, I think she's brilliant. So yes, we make some beautiful natural wine in America. So stitch that up because, again, our podcast is really broad church in terms of all things food and wine, and we don't have like a wine dominant or maybe even, you know, I'm semi-illiterate in in wine. But I think you were kind of re- re- referencing what's often called a state bottled, where it, I think you were saying that natural wine often comes from places where people grow their own grapes and make their own wine in the same place. Exactly. Versus, is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes. And, and it doesn't so mean the other, excuse me, the other thing is like called Nagos, and it is possible. And so I, I can think of a lot of people in California who have their hand a little bit in the farming. And even if they just have their hand a little bit in the farming and they mostly buy their own grapes, it makes a tremendous difference in what transmits into the bottle. And I guess that's the issue is if you decide you want to make natural wine, but you don't control your own grape production, you're much more limited in your choices. Is, right. Is and that one of those? Exactly. And you know, um, organic or biodynamic farming is, for me, an essential part of making natural wine. And let me tell you, America does not make that easy because there are pathetically few acres of organic vines in this country. Well, let's talk about that because I've encountered that and I go between this, the states and Europe fairly frequently and get kind of con- lost in all the jargon of natural wine and wine that's labeled organic. And then in, in Europe, particularly in France, they use the term bio, which is like bio um, 
are those interchangeable or what are the differences you need to sort of be aware of? It gets trickier and trickier. So uh, there is, well, biodynamic wine, There now there is a category of biodynamic wine. It used to really just refer to the farming. But so if you see an organic wine from organic grapes and check the label, that means that the wine is from organic grapes and it doesn't tell you anything about the winemaking. The same thing, wine from biodynamic grapes doesn't tell you anything about the winemaking. If it is a certified organic wine and it comes from Europe, it can have any kind of additive in it as long as it is certified organic. So that means you have organic yeast, organic um, bacteria, organic tannin, and so on and so forth. It, it can be a completely conventional wine. With a biodynamic wine, it's kind of closer to a natural wine, but it is also no guarantee. But if you see a Demeter certified wine product, yeah, it's probably going to be more natural than not. It's a good bet. Unfortunately, there is no category for natural wine. So there you go. You have to learn the back of the bottle trick, which is useful in the United States and see who imported it. And if it's one of the many natural wine importers, then you're kind of safe. And one thing that I think is really cool about the book is that I I put a very long list of wine importers that you can get used to and look for in the wine shops. Yeah, and you have a really helpful um, list of wine shops that specialize in natural wine. And I was very pleased to see my friend Jill Bernheimer's shop. Oh, Jill, yes. Jill. But on that point, poor Jill, we'll use her as an example. I think what you're also saying is if you become interested in natural wine or you've gotten your book, it takes a fair amount of discovery and research and you really need to talk to to wine retailers to understand which wines are natural or natural in what way. Right. You have to be a quite informed, inquisitive consumer, no? Yes, you do. I, if you're lucky enough to be near a shop like Jill's or any number of them in this country now, um, in pretty much almost every state, uh, then you go in there, you develop a relationship, you have them guide you. That is very, very useful. If you're not, like the poor people in um, Kentucky have a hard time because you also can't ship there. So there are a couple of states that make it very difficult for you. But it's also really fun. There's a lot of online resources. And, you know, people who get into wine love the hunt. It's part of it. Love the hunt. You begin to be part of a community. You start traveling for wine. And all of a sudden, you're connected to this international network of people who are ardent about this stuff. So it's not too much of a hardship. Well, and let's talk about the, the the hunt, and also for those who are listening that are maybe you know a passionate wine drinkers, but haven't thought about this aspect or been thinking about other things. What what is it that you think is going to what people will discover or get excited about once they start looking into natural wines? One of the most uh, delightful responses for people who immediately get it is. Um, They'll laugh, they'll be shocked, they'll say, wow. They'll say, I didn't know this could be wine. And there's a whole bunch of people coming out of the beer world who never would consider wine. And they're seeing all of these wonderful uh, flavor similarities with some of the more wilder wines. Uh, So it really breaks the fourth wall, like an acting term where the actor comes off the stage and into the audience, there's an immediate response and it's um, it's very interactive. And I think this is the best of natural wine. It provokes a reaction. So I kind of feel like it's for two people. If you're quite health concerned or have had allergic things that you don't understand or but you really like wine, that there's, there's sort of the health Uh, consciousness direction you could go or if you're quite experienced and really love wine but are looking for new horizons this is a way to discover them they're kind of for both groups yeah and I'll even add the third for those people who go to the green market eat unprocessed food uh, care about the quality of their bread and their tomato 
that there shouldn't be a disconnect. I don't understand. There's been a disconnect for the longest time between the kind of food that we eat and the what we drink. And for some reason, wine was not considered food. I don't get that. So for people who really care about the food they put on their body, they really should care about the wine they put on their body. And then, yes, people looking to reduce allergic reactions. They have a bad reaction to wine. They may not have that to natural wine. And yes, of course, the person who is looking for perhaps a more immediate expression of terroir, that sense of place in a wine, and also new horizons. So it's really for a great broad spectrum. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll get some more natural wine insights from Alice. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back. We're talking to author, natural wine expert, Alice Firing, about her new book, Natural Wine for the People. So, Alice, let's go back to just talking kind of about wine in general, but as it relates to your lens. So kind of because (laughs) there's such a wide variety and that ultimately I think what makes for a great wine or when someone says, oh, this tastes good, it's quite subjective. Not everyone tastes the same way. But in your view, how do you describe what makes for a great wine? A great wine for me has to be natural wine or natural enough wine it has to be farmed well and made from that one ingredient and not really have an impact from the vessel it was fermented in and so let's take that as a starting point and then what makes that different from a little beverage that I'll drink every day to wine that makes me go oh my god this is really something incredible is a wine that provokes an emotional reaction that um that has structure, that is not mindless, that makes me notice. Uh, it is not, that has a little bit of savory. I mean, fruit quality is not the most important thing for me in a wine. In fact, fruit fades. So how is that going to evolve? Whether it has, it goes back to this basics of all good wine, texture, tannin, structure, acid, um, and, yeah, I'll, I'll even put longevity in it. Yeah, like, is that is that wine going to disappear? Is it going to evolve? So those are those are my criteria. And, of course, yeah, and, going back to the farming. And, and I think what you described, too, is kind of that, uh, it, it, in almost a simpler definition than I think most people think they need, you know, such a massive vocabulary and education for great wine, I think you just described that you drink it and you have some kind of overall pleasing sensory or multi-sensory experience from it. Right. There are so many wines that we just drink and we don't notice. Um, and those are fine. I mean, in the natural wine world, we call them vin soif, uh, wines of thirst. And, you know, they're great. They're great late at night. They're easy to drink. Um, think about them as the, like the rosé of the natural wine world, even though we have fabulous rosés in our natural wine world. But they're just wines to hang out with. That's very different from a wine that you go, oh, my God, what just happened? <laughs> so, so how does that relate to food then? So do, do natural wines pair differently with food than wines people might be more used to drinking? Well, I think for, for me, they pair much better much more satisfactorily with food because they don't have that nasty wood component um, to deal with uh, and they are more alive so as a Tony Couture and I always use this quote of his um, with, a natu- with a conventional wine the first sip is the best and with the natural wine the last sip is the best because it evolves some people like Aldo Somme um, the great sommelier from 
the better them. Ha- says he has a hard time pairing natural wines with food because they evolve so. So he can't count on it. But to me, that's what makes it exciting. Uh, so, at, for example, I went to Ada. Uh, Indian restaurant that is pretty spicy at Long Island City on Saturday night. And I brought a very natural Lambrusco, a red fizzy wine that had absolutely no sulfite added and just a real farmer fizz wine. And oh my God, I never thought to pair Lambrusco with hot Indian food. And it was absolutely brilliant. So, I don't know. And is, is that because a natural Lambrusco is a little less overpowering than, than a commercially produced one? Yes. And the fact that it has no sulfites makes it not as aggressive. And also it had way more flavor profile. On the nose, maybe it had a little bit of a, somebody looking for flaws would may think that uh, it has a little bit of nail polish remover on the nose. as a kind of thing, hmm, what's going on? I'm not, yeah, it is kind of funny. Some people like that smell. Some people, so. you know, I used to drink Amarone back in the day. It had a lot of that little shoe polish thing. But when it became, they cleaned up the area and they cleaned up the winemaking and they made it modern, that went away. And that's when I stopped drinking Amarone. But it had more, going back to Lambrusco, it had playful things in it that just interacted with the food better. Also, the acidity was brilliant. So you need a high acid wine to stand up to a lot of the sauces in Indian cooking and spices. Well, that no, that's a really helpful uh, description. So let's go back to the sort of ins and outs of natural wine. And and I think it helps to talk about some of the common misperceptions or myths about natural wine, which you cover quite well in the book. Could you talk about some of those most most common or most challenging uh, myths or misperceptions? Well, and actually, I think the impetus for this book came out of that. As I walked into Discovery Wine one day before I started writing this book, and Trevor, the manager said people come in here asking for cloudy wine and that's when I thought you know what I really need to write this book all natural wine is not necessarily cloudy there can be perfectly clear natural wines um, and all cloudy wine is not necessarily natural so you have to be careful about that that is one myth another myth is for me, not all natural wine is zero, zero, meaning um, zero and put in the vineyard. That is, should be organic. But I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be, if the winemaker needs some, 10 to 20 parts per million. So not everything is totally zero sulfide added. Another myth is that natural wine doesn't age. Wow, that's a big one. Natural wine, if it's made well, can age for a quite a long time. Those are probably three of the biggest. Um, I left my cheat sheet at home. I wanted to, just wondering whether I forgot one of the, another really big one. But those are three that are certainly well, we'll on the top. we'll probably come to it. Because I, I, the, the other thing about those myths and misperceptions, they come from the kind of organized, well, maybe it's not organized, but the opposition to this idea of natural wine. And, and I think the opposition does not directly to natural wine, but that natural wine somehow represents an affront to the existing commercialized wine industry. So I wanted to hear from you about why you think there's been such, you could call it snobbery or just opposition in the wine world, particularly maybe the American wine world, to natural wine. Right. And uh, that led me, which is a nice segue, one big myth is that all natural wine are bacterial swamps (laughs) that leads it and that comes from the other side for sure that's one of the attacks that often get uh vaulted at um at people like me and other defenders of the of natural wine so why is this um that is it's so it's it's a big one it's a it's a snake pit uh when we get into it All right, how to simplify this. Natural wine is a category disruptor. There's a lot of money based on on wine standardization. So for natural wine to come in and say, your notion of flawed wine doesn't pertain here, 
that um, you know, wine really should only have one ingredient and not all of your 72 plus certainly is going to ruffle some feathers. In addition, if my wine is natural, that means that your wine is unnatural. And mm. at least that is what does ruffle some feathers, that kind of rationale. And yeah, you know, I think that wine that is manufactured is kind of unnatural. I stopped eating processed food a long, long time ago. Uh, I was was brought up reading ingredients on my food because I was brought up eating kosher, so I had to. But it's really funny that I took that to my, once I left that behind me, I still cared about what went in my body. And yes, I don't think commercial wine is necessarily the kind of wine that I want to drink. So it is unfortunate, I think, but I just don't see any, any way to avoid it and just have to go into that battle. So I was going to ask you about about that in terms of it seems like there's been this opposition and I think that that's a great point which is if you call something natural wine that that means everything else is unnatural which is obviously not what I think the the mainstream or or non-natural winemakers want to be labeled but it seems like it has been a disruptor in a way that is making the more commercial or more old-fashioned, that being a relative term, winemakers start to change some of their practices, or are they really digging in and trying to just stop natural wine from evolving? Well, you know, they tried this with natural food, which is actually an unfortunate term for food, because, you know, what, but that, what does that really mean? But What is happening with natural wine completely parallels what happened with the natural food movement that came out of the organic food movement in the 70s and 80s. And there was this kind of pushback into the 90s with natural food. And what happened? You know, it went big business. So this is exactly, I'm unfortunately going to happen with natural wine as well. Unfortunately, in some ways, and fortunately, in another way. For example, there is a winery outside of Romania that has just launched a natural wine in England. It is an orange wine, and it is they are billing it as a natural orange wine that I think sells for like four and a half pounds. Now, there are some practices with that wine that make it a wine that I wouldn't necessarily want to drink, but it hasn't any additives. It is from organic grapes. It doesn't have any sulfite added. And while it's clarified, it is not filtered or fined. And it's four and a half pounds. And there are people who just want to drink something that is natural enough. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. So I think that is the future, that this winery is kind of setting the path. A lot of other wineries are starting to do the same thing. I have a hard time when a winery like that presents themselves as artisanal as opposed to a commercial product. You know, so I'll always be upholding the small farmer who is really making, you know, risking all to do their the work. Are you but saying that is, because in this example changing. of the Romanian wine, that mm-hmm. it's it's a very large-scale production? Is that is that why you're... Yeah, well, d- yeah, because d- they have to. They, You know, if you make a wine on that kind of scale, you really have to make a standardized product. Have to. I understand that. You know, the person who's paying four and a half pounds in a supermarket is not necessarily the person who is going to be really, like, studying wine a great deal. You know, they just want a drink for dinner that is kind of do no harm. But there will be a lot of people who don't want to lose market share and will start to maybe transform a part of their business into natural wine. They'll start shifting over. They have to, and they are starting to do that. But on a larger level, not only is it a disruptor, it is, I see natural wine as um, as a rectifier, that we are, it is somehow the little engine that could, it is bringing back a certain sanity to the wine business, it is making regions like Burgundy go back to natural yeast fermentation, cutting back on their their new wood addition and cutting back on sulfide addition. So maybe these people are not going to go whole hog natural, but most of the world, especially in the fine wine 
sector is rethinking the way they're making wine. And I think that is awesome. Well, and it sounds like ultimately, whether it all goes to the same place or not, everyone potentially benefits because it's making either it's helping people with craft and making more complex artisanal wines, or it's making more mass produced wines less full of crap. Exactly. You know, the reason um, I, I wrote my first book was because the traditional wines of the world were disappearing. And I realized that what I was talking about was natural, the new wave of natural was coming on to replace it. But really what I was, I still am a traditional and I miss a lot of those old traditional wines. And what we're seeing is that come back. Um, people coming back to their sanity, even in places like Bordeaux, which had, um, you know, really, like, it was, there was hardly a wine from Bordeaux that I could drink six, seven years ago, and now there are quite a few. And, and is that, you've written about this, this sort of parkerization of wine from Robert Parker's rankings, and is that because that whole thing became commodified in a way that even supposedly artisanal wines were all shooting for the same target or same sort of types of criteria so that there was even in higher end wines it was more commodified because it was there were similar standards that everyone was shooting for yeah there there were certain industries that were developed to help wineries manufacture their wine so they could receive 95 96 98 100 points from Robert Parker and when you do this you start standardizing the taste and this is exactly what happened and it really was a phenomenon because it went worldwide so from a supermarket wine to a cult Cabernet to a first growth Bordeaux. They all started tasting pretty damn similar. And is that the sort of discovery that you're seeing now with the movement of natural wine that you're finding? There is much more diversification. I know I had an orange wine for the first time a couple of weeks ago and was like, oh, wow. Yeah, there's the reaction. It's like, oh, wow, that's like wild. <laughs> um, yes, the diversity is back. And that, I think, is something we can all celebrate. Excellent. So before before we move on to our last segment, I did want to ask you, just because we at the Julia Child Foundation are all about mentoring, as was Julia, and you do something related. So I wanted to hear about it. Tell us about the Firing Line Writing Mentorship Award oh, that you, you run. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Uh, you know, I've been um, a little bit, well, I kind of want to go into my own mentor phase at this point. Also, so many people want to be wine writers, and there's not a whole lot of really good wine writing going on today. One thing is that most of it is first person without having earned first person, without any history. Uh, people are not understanding how to edit, how to form, what a topic sentence is. And there are writing awards, but there really aren't a lot of writing awards for people who want to get into the field. So I said, okay, I want to do something about this. So I had my first one this year, and I wanted to gather a bunch of judges that I think anybody would be proud to be judged by, and one of them was the novelist Amy Bloom, who I was really, really happy to get on board for this. We had about 80, 80 people um, hand in their work, uh, and wow. had a short list of about 10, one clear standout winner. I learned a tremendous amount from this. Just, um, I really did about what people want to write about and how much work people are willing to put into their writing. There were three runner-ups and one winner. Uh, the winner was Meg Bernard, and she is from, she lives in Spain. She's an American living in Spain. She wrote an absolutely beautiful story about writing with a woman. One of the things that was imperative is that all the winners were going to be put through a heavy-duty edit process and actually learn about structure and everything like that. So I, I love doing it. And here you go. Had Govino as a sponsor, and it was... I know. We'll see if we do it again. Well, I hope you do. So let, let's just stick on that for one second, because I think that's a really key point of it, is it's a prize, right? But the yeah. prize includes a, a little bit of cash, but this opportunity to learn, right? The mentoring. Just describe how the mentoring part works. So 
the first, uh, actually, I split my mentoring duties with Felicity Carter, who is the editor in chief of Meininger's Wine International, um, Wine International, a wonderful business magazine. And the way I handled mine with Meg was send her back notes my ideas and then she rewrites I send her back more notes she rewrites restructured it and then I wanted her to go through a pitching process to other people so how to do a query letter what are the proper targets um, for this particular piece and if she doesn't place it elsewhere I get to publish it <laughs> which I which I actually hope is the case since I already paid for it <laughs> But no, that's great. Why, you know, why but not? the thing is, I do know that these are essays, and essays are incredibly difficult to place. So, knowing that, I have a feeling that I'll probably be able to publish it. But it also was, in a way, was written directly for me. So, um, but at least she is now well in her way to understand how the process works. And um, is it? I, I know they're runner-ups. Is it only the finalist who gets mentored, or do the no, runner-ups the, as well? The others did, and those people. It's kind of interesting that the clear winner was somebody who does have some writing cred, even though she's at the beginning. The other people have jobs in the wine world, and I don't know whether it was is just because of their other duties that they haven't really taken the feedback and gone to their second edit yet and I assume they will but it also made me realize that a lot of people we all want to write and not everybody has um, the idea or the the guts or the guy I think I shouldn't say guts I think that the patience to go through the rewriting that a writer has got to do that we often forget that writing is one thing, it's expressing, but the real work in being a writer is to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So I'm hoping Uh, uh, that uh, my runner-ups, who all have amazing potential, get their act together and get Felicity those rewrites. Absolutely, as my friends Liz Craft and Sarah (laughs) Fink. Yeah, no, as my friends Liz Craft and Sarah Fain say on their podcast, Happier in Hollywood, which is all about writing, mostly writing for, they always, their mantra is writing is rewriting. So I'm really glad you covered that. Right. So are you a natural wine drinker? Do you seek out wines made without additives? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org to let us know. After the break, Alice reveals her Julia moment. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And you know, Heritage Radio Network has thousands more. Hi, my name is Linda Palaccio, and I'm the host on A Taste of the Past here on HRN. Join us on a weekly journey through culinary history, where we explore the when, where, what, and why of food throughout history. You can find A Taste of the Past wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Alice, what's your Julia moment? Okay, I'm going to have to make that plural, please. That's <laughs> fine. Still be short, it's been done, but I, yeah. But, um, you know, when I moved to Boston to go to graduate school, my roommate was a Julia Child fanatic, and when I started cooking a little bit more seriously, I grabbed her Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2, and made a transformative courgette farcie dish <laughs> that was really made me understand the power of a recipe, uh, the beauty of, of zucchini, uh, and just I just adored following that recipe. It became one of my favorite, and it really opened up the door to Julia. Of course, Julia and Paul lived not far from where I lived, and I would see them all the time, and they were the most adorable couple. 
Another one was having Julia's voice on my answering machine when I was interviewing her for a story I did for Cooking Light, and I think I still have it somewhere in my archives. But probably the most wonderful Julia moment that happened decades and decades after I started writing about natural wine was coming across what she wrote about wine in volume one. Wine is a living liquid containing no preservatives. Without a doubt, as you opened up this segment, if Julia was alive today, she would be totally on board with the natural wine movement. And I know, it's like as if she wasn't enough of a goddess back then, she's even more of a goddess now. Lovely. Well, I think I thank you for a quartet of, of <laughs> lovely Julia moments. That that's gr- terrific. You're you're not the first person to go plural. So okay, good. <laughs> well, Al- Alice, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. If you don't already, please follow us on social media. And if you already do, ask your friends to. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N, on Twitter. The book is Natural Wine for the People What It Is, Where to Find It, How to Love It, by Alice Firing, with illustrations by Nishant Choksi. Available from 10 Speed Press. Pre order it now online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller. To follow Alice on social media, she's at Alice Firing on Twitter and at Alice.Firing on Instagram. It's F-E-I-R-I-N-G. To learn more about Alice's work and natural wine, you can also visit thefiringline.com. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. And thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. And it's even better if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, ever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrations happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.